0: There's a new and better way to interact with podcasts. The Clever Podcast app allows you to bookmark, highlight your favorite quotes, and buy recommended products all in one place. You can listen to any public podcast, but we'll have exclusive Haas podcast content only available in our Clever app. So sign up for Clever today at clever.fm and do more than listen.
1: Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee. And today we're joined by Chase Roberts. He's an EW, class of 2019, and currently principal at a venture capital firm, Vertex Ventures. Welcome to the podcast,
0: Chase. Thanks, Sean. Can I just tell you, you have a fantastic podcast voice.
1: (laughs) Thank you. I think you would too, if you had this mic. (laughs) (laughs) So Chase, before we dive into your venture capital story, I really want to hear about your background, where you grew up and what you
0: did before Haas. So I grew up in a place that was very foreign to the Bay Area where I now live, almost a separate country, but not quite. It's called rural Oklahoma. So I grew up in Oklahoma. I, I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Oklahoma where I studied finance and venture management and then also got two minors in econ and Spanish. And after school, I Should I actually tell the story of how it landed with a finance degree? Because this is probably interesting. I actually didn't pick it myself. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. All right. So I'll I'll tell that. I went to the University of Oklahoma for my undergrad and uh, I graduated with a degree in finance, but that actually was not my decision. In fact, I, I really didn't even know what it meant to get a degree in finance. My father went to the job placement office and asked the question, which majors get the most jobs? Their first answer was accounting. And he had worked with many accountants in his life. And he said, well, (laughs) I'm not going to be an accountant. And so he said, okay, what gets the second most jobs? And they said, finance. He goes, Chase, you're going to be a finance major. And so that started my career in finance. I didn't really know what that meant, but I started to hear the words private equity and management consulting a lot toward the end of school. I actually didn't really know what that meant either, but I thought those were the areas I was going to go for because the smartest people were talking about those job industries. And I ended up landing at a venture capital and private equity fund of funds, which is basically the investor of investors. And so Mm. when venture capital and private equity firms go raise capital, we were one of those sources of capital. And it was there that I got my first introduction to venture capital as an asset class. I had never heard of anything like that. I think I remember seeing the words, or hearing the words venture capital on, on wedding crashers, the movie, but that, that was just about it. And when you get introduced to venture capital, that's when you also discover tech-based entrepreneurship. And we can come back to that later as to why I actually ended up getting into venture. But I, I'll say this. I was in that I was fascinated by there were these people who got paid to ask a lot of questions for a living and then work with founders and try to help them build interesting things. And I thought that sounded cool. And so I had earmarked that as something that like, hey, maybe down the road through the spiral journey that is life, I could do that, but I'm not sure I'm going to get there. I'm just going to keep my head down and keep working. And so I I bumped around finance for a little bit longer. I went over to an investment bank as an equity research analyst. And at that time, I thought the best way to orient oneself in in their career was to chase money and titles. And I saw a (laughs) slightly larger paycheck and a slightly more senior sounding title. That ended up being a bad decision as I realized that I was basically just talking about things that a lot of people could already read for themselves on the internet. Equity research, you really can't. You're talking about public information because talking about non-public is actually illegal. And So you're basically just repackaging a lot of information that's out there for anyone else who wants it. So I was doing that for a while. And after moving numbers around spreadsheets for a little bit, I just realized that like, this is not something that's going to yeah, that's giving me a lot of excitement I don't want to move numbers around spreadsheets for a living yeah. and so I came home to my wife one night and we had been married for only a few months at this point point. and I said I really don't want to do this financing anymore I'm really interested in what's happening in Silicon Valley by that time I had started to read about TechCrunch and all the cool things that were happening out in the Bay Area and I was like I want to go out there and it was actually a pretty like non-consequential conversation like we went, it wasn't like a big conversation with this you know, where it felt like it was a big deal. And so she was like, oh yeah, cool, whatever, sounds good, do what you want to do. And the next day I actually went and quit my job. And at the time it felt heroic, but it probably (laughs) wasn't that heroic for someone who's in their mid-20s. And then I started my search and decided I wanted to do the tech thing. And at the time I just read a book by a guy named Clay Christensen uh, Mm -hmm. called The Innovator's Dilemma. And Mm -hmm. I thought that his ideas were pretty remarkable. And I found a video of him speaking at an event for a company called Box. I was like, okay, well, what is Box. And I discovered the CEO of Box, a guy named Aaron Levy. And if you've ever seen Aaron Levy, he's just full of energy. His personality and his drive is infectious. And I just thought to myself, I want to follow him into the sun. Mm -hmm. And so I sent a cold email and I was like, hey, here's why I think your company is interesting. I didn't know his email. I didn't realize that for most people in Silicon Valley, emails are just first name at at companyurl.com. In the finance world, they were always really complicated and had a lot of numbers in them. And so I sent an email to jobs at box.net. And I made a case for why I wanted to be at that company. And here are the skills that I have. And here's what I think I could do. And those skills were mostly uh, being good at Excel. And there were not jobs available to people (laughs) working on Excel. And they just came back, look, we're hiring engineers and salespeople. Yeah. I was like, okay, I can't do the engineer thing, but maybe the sales. And at the time, I wasn't that excited about a job in sales. I was more excited about getting into the valley and working at a company like this. Because for me, sales just carried a different connotation. Growing up in a small town in Oklahoma, sales was the person at Dillard's who helped you find your suit. I was like, I don't <laughs> want to be that person. And I was like, well, I'm just going to use this as my way into the company and then see what happens from there. And they took a bet on me and I joined the company and. Entry level sales job. And, and it actually ended up being one of the best learning experiences of my life. You learn a lot about yourself when you're told no all the time and when you ask people for money. And that's what you're doing in sales. And those are probably some of the more, more impactful career experiences I've had over my tenure. And so long story short, I spent half a decade at Box, held the different, a variety of roles across the go to market side of the organization. Somewhere along the way, I decided that I want to go to business school. I initially started thinking I wanted to do the full time thing. And I started applying to different schools. One of the people who I had asked to write recommendation letters was just asking me, like, why do you want to go to business school? And I was like, I want to work in Silicon Valley. And, you know, I want to do a job that is not too far from what I'm doing now. And his response to me well, it sounds like you want to go to business school to go back to doing what you're doing today. Yeah, you're already doing that. <laughs> I'm already doing that. That changed my calculus a little bit. And I decided that the part-time route made some sense. And or made more sense, and realizing that there was a single part-time school that uh, was in the Bay Area and really catered to the tech ecosystem, that was Berkeley. And so, yeah, you know, I applied and started my Berkeley journey. There's three things I say not to do at business school: don't change jobs, don't have kids, and is the other one not don't get married? What was it? What's the third one? I have no idea. <laughs> okay, I'm pretty sure that was a thing. But now, I feel, now I'm feel i questioning if that was the case. <laughs> Anyways, I, uh, I didn't have kids. I didn't get married. I was already married. But I did decide to change jobs and joined a small software company called Segment. I have a tendency to join companies with very generic names, apparently. I joined Segment. I, I was the first hire for the business development team. I helped grow that function at the company. And then after a couple of years, I got into venture. And I think that's a whole another story.
1: Yeah, that's a quantum leap in some ways, especially for MBAs. I feel like to, to hear that's even possible. But in many ways, now I think about it, obviously, a lot of these sales skills, as you're saying, they're very transferable. 100%. Especially, in I think, in venture, it's about selling your firm and why they should take your money. I think with, with the smart entrepreneurs, with the smart startups, we're digging really deep um, into <laughs> this immediately, <laughs> but I just think that the smart entrepreneurs, want smart money. And they are obviously shopping around for the best money to back them. But that's neither here nor there. Let's take a step back. Because in our prior conversation, when we met, you told me about the story of the spirit of entrepreneurship, where you are today as a venture capitalist does have some roots, funny enough, back in Oklahoma. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: It's funny when you say roots in Oklahoma, I immediately started thinking about farming.
1: But I mean, yeah, when, yeah. with your, your dad, right? He was such a big influence on your career decisions. He was an influence in
0: other ways, right? Yeah, absolutely. Growing up in Oklahoma, I was in a very small town and the role models in our town were entrepreneurs. And mm-hmm. entrepreneurs were the people who owned the local car dealerships or had started the local radio station or owned a handful of hardware stores. And these were yeah. the people on the commercials. They were the people that Everyone in the community looked up to because they were the definition of success as we understood it. I think that embedded in me some bit of an infatuation for these people, like on, the entrepreneur, quote unquote, yeah. as the superhero. It was whenever I was introduced to Silicon Valley, I learned about a different kind of entrepreneurship, tech based entrepreneurship, where you know, technology enables you know, entrepreneurs to get to a scale that is just like unimaginable in previous eras that I saw this entrepreneurship at a whole different level. And part of the thing that gives me a lot of satisfaction in my job is I get to meet with people who are the ultimate form of entrepreneurship in this software based world. And they literally have the opportunity to build these massive companies and not do so over 50 years, but do it over five. And I'm amazed by the process of zero to one, because it is incredibly hard to build something from nothing. And I think it takes a lot of courage to do that and to meet with these people and in some sense, subscribe to the belief system that they that motivates them to say, I'm going to take a risk on myself and take the hard path, take the path that will most likely and has historically empirically resulted in failure and try to build something great. I just think it's remarkable.
1: Yeah, I think the next part is to hear a little bit more about your journey. How did you move from business development and Segment into venture capital?
0: So toward the end of my tenure at Box and all of the time, whenever I was at Segment, I started working with startups on the side and not in any formal advisor capacity, but just trying to help them get some of the easy wins. Most startups in the Bay Area are founded by technical people. And so they're missing a lot of the go-to-market skills and really deep intuitions around how to take the thing that they're building and convert it into dollars. And so I would I had gotten to know a bunch of startups over you know the course of you know those years that I had mentioned and just trying to help them get the easy wins. Hey, this is how we run a discovery call or this is how to think about product marketing or this is how to run a pilot and a customer evaluation. And eventually those companies would go on to raise money and I had built a network of venture capitalists or VCs over the course of my years since my first job in you know, out of college and all of my time in the Valley. And when these startups had got to raise money, I had introduced them out to my network. And one of the people that I had introduced, you know, a couple of companies to, a guy named Sandy Badra, who's at the firm that I'm with now, Vertex Ventures. This is actually kind of a funny story. So he reached out and he's like, hey, we should get drinks sometime. I was like, oh, this is great. And so I decided to bring my wife along because we do a lot of stuff together. And I was like, oh, you should meet Sandy. Come along. We're just getting drinks. It's just totally casual. And Sandy had brought one of the other partners from Vertex along and they show up and I realized that they were interviewing me, but not really interviewing me. And <laughs> we're probably wondering why my, wife, why my wife was there too, but I ended up going fine. And a couple of days after that conversation, Sandy called me, he's like, hey, we're expanding the partnership at Vertex. Do you want to toss your name in the hat as someone to potentially come work here? And as I mentioned earlier, venture was something I had earmarked as something I wanted to do some at some point in my career, but I didn't really you know, have, a, have a great strategy for how I was going to get there. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. And so I went through the interview process and three months later, I landed a job in venture. So one of the things that people always say is, how do you get into venture? It's like, well, the venture calls you, you don't call them. And that's exactly what happened with me.
1: Well, I, I think there's definitely that huge backstory there, right? That we um, quickly glossed over and that you spent a lot of time building these relationships. I remember from our power and politics class, there was this case on Heidi Rosin. That is it.
0: Yeah, right. Heidi, Heidi Rosen, something like that. Rosen,
1: yeah. And how her and I think that case study inspired me to want to go down the venture capital path because there are just certain people that are cut out for becoming the nuclei. Heidi was a nuclei herself, like she was a nuclei of her network, and her entire network are built upon meeting and having other nuclei, right, <laughs> in her network. That's right. I think it's something that networkers might overlook. Sometimes I think people might overlook, but it's because of that power of network that I think ultimately
0: gets people into venture because venture capital is about networking. It absolutely is. I mean, people think that venture capital is about picking. It's not so much about picking. It's about having the best top of funnel. So seeing the best companies and Mm -hmm. eventually there's enough randomness in the decisions that you make that if the top of the funnel is good, you're choosing some good companies and your top of funnel really depends on you know, the people in your network. And, and I think that the networks really serve two functions in venture. One, it's a source for potential entrepreneurs to invest in. And, and then also, it's a way to you know, build a more prepared mind to be able to invest. And so, for example, if I'm making an investment in the data space, it's not really my perspective that matters. It's it's that of the customers. And so I constantly am tapping my network, to, like in the on this example, to talk to people who work in data and ask them, like, yeah, help me understand this problem more deeply. And how do you think about this? How do you solve this today? How would you become aware of this problem? So that way I can develop a sharper mind to make a lucky choice. Yeah. What is it saying about luck? Luck favors the prepared mind. Is that what it is?
1: Yeah. Luck favors the prepared mind. Yeah. Well, oh, there's fortune favors the bold and fortune favors the prepared mind. Yeah. There it is. Funny That's enough, I actually have that tattooed in Latin on my shoulder here. Really? <laughs> Yeah. Maybe this is a sign that you should that be a venture capitalist. Fortune favors the prepared mind. I love my, that. one of my, my best friend has fortune favors the bold. We're like different in personality in that way, where he's just like he takes a lot of physical risks and some other types of risks too. But for me it's like I'm more of a nerd, like I read a lot. <laughs> and so for me it's like fortune favors the prepared mind.
0: Um, what inspired you to get that tattoo? I think it's just
1: like how I operate. I'm all about just learning and connecting the dots which after taking the VC course and power and politics, I really want to go into VC. But at the same time, I feel like I still have another company to build under me, at least another one or two. But I I did tell all my Haas buddies I said, all right, you guys, you're going to MS, you're going to Morgan Stanley, you're going to Bain, you're going to Segment, right? Like wherever you guys are heading, let me go get our GP money ready. (laughs) (laughs) And then I'll collect the forces because I was like, we just need to put up 10 million to raise the other 90, right? So let me put that up. <laughs> I love that. So that's uh, that's the pipe dream.
0: I think that some of the best investors are former operators because they've been in the shoes of the founders and they can bring to bear the lessons that they had over their journeys. And so I think that you know, building something as you are will make you a better investor should you decide to go down that path. I think I will. <laughs> it's just a matter of timing. Speaking of all this stuff,
1: let's hear a little bit more about Vertex Ventures. Can you tell us what segments or
0: speaking of segment what segments or industries that you guys focus on (laughs) yeah happy to so vertex ventures is a boutique investment fund boutique in that there are four of us investing out of our second 150 million dollar fund and each of us are actually only make a couple investments per year and you can take the word couple literally like our target is two and that's a max target and the reason for that is we tend to be more active as investors, and so active is not us bugging entrepreneurs for like updates you know on their sales progress, but it's actually trying to play a coach and, and sometimes in some cases, playing a shoulder to cry on. It's for an example of, of what it means to be a shoulder to cry on. like it's not uncommon for a, an entrepreneur to call late on a Friday night and say, "You know my largest customer just churned and I have to keep it together for the team and tell them that this isn't a big deal, but holy shit, what do we do? That's <laughs> that's part of it. And the reason I try to describe our role as coaches is you know, we see our job as is trying to pattern match between companies, things we've seen before, like, oh, I've seen this play. You want to enter the go from the mid-market to the enterprise. Here's some of the things you should consider as it, you know, as it relates to hiring new salespeople or investing in new product areas. Or we've seen this other company do this. And maybe this is something that you could learn from. And the other thing that the coach does is they don't play the game for the entrepreneurs. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs are worried that their VCs are going to come in and try to run the companies. That's not us. We're going to be cheering them on from the sidelines. We're going to try to create a structure in which they can be successful. And then but we're going to let them play the game and the decisions they make will support them on that.
1: What's the industry? You guys
0: focus on. I know you guys don't invest across the board. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> we don't invest across the board. We're B2B investors or enterprise investors. Basically, any area where there are the buyer is a business or in mm-hmm. a business context, that is within our strike zone, except for things related to healthcare. And those who can do consumer investing, they're much smarter than we are. I'll say this: the original thesis for the firm was something called Thing MV or Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, MV. And it's Mm -hmm. this idea that these companies need software to do whatever it is that they do, but the software that's available is not up to par for the requirements that they have because they're operating with such sophistication and such scale that the software marketplace or the software ecosystem hasn't caught up. And so Mm. those companies actually build a lot of their own tools internally and so we will often look at what are they building for themselves and then use that as some sort of signal about where the market might turn and it's like if you know google built a software to help them do xyz better why did they build that is this broadly applicable and could we go find someone who is trying to work on a more wide like commercial version of that right and so that was the original thesis for the firm and i think that still does drive a lot of our investing but broadly speaking we are enterprise investors we invest At the seed in Series A, our check size is somewhere between 1 and 10 million, and we typically lead rounds. That's the quick and dirty on us.
1: That's awesome. And what about yourself? Uh, I'm really curious if you have any
0: personal interests or areas of passion for investing. So I've been spending most of my time recently in the data space. And the reason for that is if you look at what's happened with developer and developer tools, they've got this great ecosystem of products that have emerged around them to help Mm -hmm. them be more productive with their work. But if you go and look at data pr- data people or data practitioners, they're still doing a lot of the same type of work that they've done for decades. And I literally mean decades. And so we're entering a renaissance for data folks where a new category of software tools is emerging around them to basically help abstract some of the boring, tedious work that they've been doing for years. And so I'm spending a lot of time there. Not as interesting as a Hot or Not app, but it's interesting to me. (laughs) I think the Hot or Not founders are actually from Berkeley. Wait, wasn't that Mark Zuckerberg's first thing that he did?
1: Oh, for Facebook?
0: Like before Facebook? Mm. Maybe, I don't know.
1: I feel like there was another one that came out of Berkeley. Maybe Berkeley got the Hot
0: Dog, Not Hot Dog app.
1: Hot or Not were created, founded in 2000 by James Holland Jr. Two friends, Silicon Valley-based engineers, both graduated from the University of uh, California, Berkeley. Hey, there you go. It's funny enough, if that was early, that was October 2000, that means they preceded Facebook. That's amazing. And then, and then Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg was trying to create something. I think his go-to-market strategy was just different. <laughs> <laughs> Starting with the universities, right? And then creating exclusivity from that. Maybe it's all about the execution. Same idea, but different execution.
0: Do you remember the first piece of software, the first app that really shocked your soul?
1: That's a really great question. I can't say... I do. I'll let you go first. Let me ask you Okay, I gotta
0: go first. Okay. The first two that came to mind, and I don't know why they did, and I'm not sure if these are the actual ones, but these are the first two that came to mind. First is MySpace. How cool am I? Because I remember (laughs) in MySpace, you could write HTML to customize your page. My friends and I, it was usually a contest to see who could make their page look the most interesting and most creative. And so it's mm. basically copying a lot of HTML off of other like web forums and trying to implement it. That's the first one. And then I also, a uh, GarageBand from Apple. We got a Mac when I was younger and that Mac came with GarageBand on it. And it comes with all these preloaded beats and I started like mixing up a bunch of stuff. And then eventually I got a MIDI controller. And you know, for the uninitiated, a MIDI controller is basically a keyboard that plugs into your computer. And... I started to mix stuff up and I say that in like the least cool context possible because nothing was nothing I put together was good, but I spent hours and hours mixing music and GarageBand. That's so funny.
1: I thought of mine too. The first one has to be Macromedia Flash. It doesn't exist anymore because it got bought up by Adobe and it's deprecated now, but I remember taking a class in high school at Macromedia Flash and then obviously learning how to build web pages with Macromedia Flash and it was one of the coolest things back in the day because... It felt so advanced that you could create animations on the web. The web wasn't just a static page, right?
0: right? You could
1: have these really complex animations, not just a GIF or anything. But if you remember, like Flash drove all the early That's web right. games. That's right. right? So it's uh, before JavaScript really started taking over. But Macromedia Flash was the first one. I think that really changed my world and made me... Who I am today as a as web developer on the side. The second piece of software has to be, or it's a website similar to, to MySpace, but for me it was Zanga. Yeah.
0: Oh my gosh, Zanga! Uh, <laughs> wow. Now we're digging into the archive. Yeah. I forgot Zanga. about Zanga.
1: Zanga was amazing. This was pre Facebook. That's right. Zanga was a you know just a blog site. Right, it was like MySpace, but a focus heavily on on writing, right? On blogging, on microblogging. I guess there's a name called and there's a name to it nowadays. <laughs> but through Zanga, you were able to follow other people's writings and meet people. Like I remember back in the day, I made so many online friends through Zanga across the country. It was like this is the analogy. It was the first online version.
0: I think the, the mass appeal online version of pen pals. Do you keep up with any of those people or do, are there any relationships that have been retained over the years? Yeah, not only
1: that, those relationships, they blossom and grown into like multiple networks. It's pretty amazing now, I think. About Obviously, I don't use it anymore, but I don't know when I stopped using it. I think I stopped using it after college. I think the last entry would have been in
0: 2007. 2007, <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I remember having a Zynga site now we're digging into the archives. I think I remember I went to the summer camp whenever I was, when I was in middle school. And I recall trading Zyngas with people at the summer camp and, and that being the way that we kept up with each other once our two weeks ended. Yeah. I'm actually afraid that some of the stuff that was written is still hosted. I don't even <laughs> want to know. It's like when you spill something and you just don't want to see how bad it is. I feel like that's probably the case with Zynga and, and what I've written in the past.
1: There's no way. I just typed it in. Apparently, I mean Zanga.com still exists. It's just yeah, it's be, behind a login wall. So <laughs> oh yeah, I gosh. don't. I don't even remember my username on there. I had a friend who actually, as a gag gift, had my Zanga post published and printed. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> and she gave it to me in this little booklet. It was like all my Zanga entries printed out into a little booklet. It was the funniest thing. I don't know what happened to it though. Definitely don't have it anymore.
0: <laughs> Do you remember the first website you built with Flash?
1: Yeah, it was for my high school. This is a great question because this goes to the roots of my entrepreneurial life. The first business that I started was a website business. I help people build websites. And the first website I built was for our school because even though they taught us Mac Media Flash, our school didn't have a website. And so I... Came up with a domain name, iatoday.org for International Academy, and built a site with a couple of my buddies. Then I decided, why can't I do this for other businesses, right? Or other organizations, help them build websites. And the craziest thing was at school, they actually created a course for us so that we'd have in our junior, senior year, like a block of time for web design stuff. So this kind of club that we created, they created a course out of it like a block schedule course for just the the web what are we called not web managers what we called the web webmasters
0: webmasters <laughs> that's right and you
1: know what we do we would just spend that hour updating the website for like 10 minutes and just playing diablo one <laughs> for the other 40 minutes
0: do you remember when in school when the internet was such a novelty like I, well, I remember that's the thing though i remember being in high school and it was like The moment you got to get on the internet, it was like, oh my gosh. It was
1: amazing. Oh my gosh. That's why we played at school. Because at home, we had dial-up at home. Oh, yeah. DSL. And and then, so it was like, we couldn't take up the phone lines at, at home to play these online games. And so, at school, not only did they have this like amazing cable connection, but it was just uninterrupted internet. And it was just amazing. We were super nerds back in high school. But yeah, that was my first business, helping schools and organizations build websites.
0: How much did the, now. Hmm? did the school pay Did the school pay?
1: No, that's why they created that course for us. No, our high school didn't pay us anything. But other schools would pay us a couple hundred bucks for a website. It's amazing. Uh, back in the day, that's, even today, it's a lot of
0: Shoot, money. that's real money. <laughs> yeah.
1: it's like, we started around $100 for just a basic like website. It was a three-page website, and then for anything beyond that, you yeah, know, just scaled from there. You need six pages; it was like two hundred dollars.
0: <laughs> I love that. I love that website. I love that the price of websites is defined in the number of pages. Now we've got web applications; like every page is different. Every page is unique.
1: Yeah, back in the day, we had literally code every single page.
0: Oh, that's right.
1: Nowadays, you have CSS. Back in the day, there was no
0: CSS. You just had to stylize every single page individually but um, so people like me could come and copy it and make it into their myspace page exactly
1: <laughs> i totally forgot about that we would just go around the web and find like the best html code and just copy on our own page yeah. that's right wow <laughs> now there's html5 and that stuff is so advanced it's pretty amazing back to you though chase this is so fun talking to you after all that talk about websites and venture capital. Really want to hear what is a day like in the world of VC?
0: Back in the old days, when we used to do things in person, the days typically started with coffee or breakfast meeting in the morning, usually with another investor or an entrepreneur. But speaking seriously, if I were to break it down, the job of VC fits into three buckets. One You deploy capital, two, you work with the companies in whom you invest, and three, you work with your own investors, which are our limited partners, the people from whom we raise money. And (laughs) I spend most of my time on the first two buckets. And I would say when it comes to deploying capital, my time is really split between meeting entrepreneurs. I meet probably, I'd say probably, I actually know the precise answer because we track this, but I'm meeting about 300 entrepreneurs or 300 companies a year. 300 to 350, meeting with a lot of companies. And then the other part of meeting with people is actually trying to develop a prepared mind. As I mentioned, I'm spending some time in the data space. So it's actually you doing a lot of reading, talking to a lot of operators. Operators is the industry term for people who are doing real work. So the ones who are not like us investing or not founders, but people who are actually have data jobs, for example, inside companies. So meeting with companies, trying to deploy capital. And then on the other side is working with the companies. As I said earlier, it's really hard going from zero to one. So there's a lot of working with them to hire people, find customers, work through big strategic decisions and try to extend our network to them in a way that's going to help them succeed. And then I would say with LPs, it's really just showing love, right? They want to know that you're being a good steward of their money. So it's sharing updates with the good things that are happening and making them feel like they've got a good pulse on what you're doing as a firm. So that way when it comes time to go revisit the well, they're excited to partner for another fund. Makes sense. That's awesome. Sounds like an exciting job. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'd honestly say like if someone's considering venture capital, I think the people who tend to thrive are the ones who are just curious about everything. It's not so much about going incredibly deep, a mile deep on a specific area, but it's getting through the surface and learning enough to be dangerous on a lot of areas. And my job just requires a, an insane amount of context switching. Like today, for example, I was. You know, speaking with the person who runs the data practice or the chief digital officer at McKinsey. And then just before that, I was speaking with a founder who's building an API for e-commerce platform. And it varies. And then this morning, I woke up and started the conversation with someone who's working on some quantum computing technology. And so it varies pretty widely. And you know, the fun part of my job is trying to learn about those areas and you know, know enough that I you know can feel qualified to make a decision about a company. How, how do you keep organized? How do you keep track of all that? Oh, man. At first, it was really hard and I didn't have a good system. Over time, I, I developed a system and I actually use a product called Notion. The website is notion.so. Or I literally organize all my research as I'm researching in Notion. So I take my notes there. I put the content there. If I meet a company that's interesting, I, I will often track that there. We have another database internally that we use to track amongst the team, but everything goes into Notion.
1: That is. Awesome. Anything else that you'd like to share with fellow alums or current students that may be listening?
0: I'll say this. If anyone listening is working in a operator role and they're wondering themselves, why are some of the things that I'm doing in my job really crappy? Or why are the tools that I'm using not as great as I wish they were? Come talk to me. Like I want to learn about some of the things that plague people because that's usually where opportunity lies. And then, of course, if anyone is working on something cool and their customer is another business, regardless of whether they've started the company or or thinking about starting the company, I'd love to start building the relationship and see if potentially it makes sense to to partner down the line. Thank you so much for your time today, Chase. It's been a real pleasure. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S There, you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. And until next time, go Bears.